Good morning. The word of God from Psalm 16. The psalmist David states his confidence in the Lord. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in this land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their name with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures. There should be one in the uh, underneath the seat in front of you. If you turn to page 478, I believe, in that copy, you'll come to Psalm 16. 478, if it's not right there, it'll be a page or two near that particular page. So we are continuing in our Summer in the Psalm series this morning, and that means we do find ourselves here in the 16th Psalm. Some of you recognize a verse or two uh, in that psalm. It's a favorite psalm of many. Part of the role of a preacher is to name realities for us that we may not name on our own. So for a moment, if you will, I'm going to risk naming a few realities of your story in order to set the stage for Psalm 16. So here we go. You are vulnerable. You try not to be, but you know that you are. So you crave safety and protection. And you long for security. Protection from evil in the world, maybe. Or from just uncertainty. From the darkness that you see in your own heart or in the circumstances around you. Protection from not experiencing a full life. Protection ultimately from death itself. In all these ways, we are vulnerable. So when did your vulnerability begin? Well, it began in your mother's womb. You were entirely dependent upon her and your father for your very existence, 
and you were dependent upon your mom as she took in nutrients during her pregnancy to sustain your life. Your vulnerability, your dependence began then. From the moment of your conception, you have never stopped being dependent or vulnerable. And those realities describe every person in this room. So because you are dependent and because you are vulnerable, that means that you have to look outside of yourself for security, for safety, for provision. We have to rely upon someone or something else for actual safety, security, and provision, or we rely upon someone or something else to give us a sense of safety, security, and provision, even if it's not actually the real thing. So these realities explain why, in a culture that is proudly and loudly secular, we hear politicians and pop stars and the average Joe talking about faith all the time. Statements like, if something's going wrong, I have faith. Or someone is trying to help someone in a tough, tough spot, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. And typically, it's you got to believe in yourself, right? We routinely hear the message of believing in yourself and of having faith in your potential or whatever ability you have to create your identity and be whomever or whatever you desire to be. So let's ask the question, where is that cultural messaging leaving us? Where does it bring us? It brings us to a mess. It brings us to a society full of depressed and suicidal young women as studies are increasingly coming out. It brings us to a generation that's more lonely and isolated than ever before. Why? Believe in yourself. It's leaving us with a generation of young people whose bodies are being irreversibly mutilated in the name of science and freedom and health care. But underneath all this mess and all this messaging... What is being tapped on? Namely this. You long for security, safety, and having your needs met. These are universal human longings. And the answers that the culture provides are way off the mark, but underneath those questions are universal. So let's make a connection to this ancient poem that's in front of us. Psalm 16. I take the superscription to mean that it was written by King David. It may have written, been written about him or for him. I take it to mean it was written by him. King David gives us a portrait, a 3D model, if you will, of what it looks like to express faith, trust, to believe in a particular object. And we talk about faith and trust and belief all the time in a religious context, right? I mean, it's come up multiple times, even this morning. But in this psalm, we're given a picture, 
a concrete reality of what faith, trust, belief in God looks like. And he helps us to realize that the object of our trust matters deeply for our flourishing. So we're going to break this psalm apart into three parts before we put it back together again at the conclusion. So, number one, King David models for us the perfect object of trust. The perfect object of trust. Look at verse one and two. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. If you're a Christian, you hear those words and something within you stirs deeply. You long to be able to say those words in a deeper, more meaningful way in a way that connects more deeply to the realities of your heart. You long to be able to say verses 1 and 2 with the full integrity of your heart, as David does. But you may be sitting here thinking that you can't fathom how anyone could say this about God. God, in your experience, is not a good to be had. God is someone to be avoided, someone to hide from, someone looking to beat you down. Now, without knowing your story or the specific nuances of why you may be thinking that, may I plant a seed in your mind as we begin our journey through this psalm? If that describes you, Could it be that perhaps the God that your parents modeled for you? Or the God that you heard about in church? Or the God that you see described by religious people? Could it be that that God is not actually the God of the Bible? What if you are rejecting the good and the beautiful and true God because you're rejecting a God who doesn't actually exist? What if the God you experienced in someone else's religious notion was more a God made in their own image than God as he reveals himself to be in the pages of Scripture? So can I encourage you, rather than rejecting this God of the scriptures in the name of, well, that's not the God I experienced in some way, shape, or form, wouldn't it make more sense to investigate who God actually declares himself to be before you reject him as a worthy object of your trust? Because David is not off the rails here. King David knows the true God. Sojourn is a missional, gospel-centered church. And that means we believe with full conviction what the Bible says about God. But that also means we want to invite you along for the journey with your doubts and 
your skepticism and your questions, your story, your baggage. You can sojourn with us, and we'd be delighted to have you explore with us, not just today, but on a regular basis, whether or not King David and so many others like him in the scriptures, if they were just totally off the mark about who this God is, or if they were actually really on to something. So King David, he's looking at God, and he's making a value judgment. Maybe he's remembering what his followers declared after a victory, like in 1 Samuel 30. King David had just led his people to a great victory, and they're on their way back in this large procession with all the the loot and the spoils of war, and the people are crying out, this is David's plunder. Maybe he's looking at that pile of plunder, and he's making a value judgment between that pile of plunder and the God he worships. Or maybe he's just thinking about the riches of his kingdom. Or maybe he's just been recently impressed with the popularity that he has among his people. And at the end of the day, David looks at all of that and he knows that stuff is just stuff. And people's opinion and judgments are just that. They're opinions. They're judgments. He knows that earthly honor is earthly. It's temporary by definition. And he's stacking up everything he has on one side of the room. The popularity, the riches, the prestige, the honor, his wealth, his kingship. And in the other side of the room is God. The God of creation, the almighty God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And he looks at a mountain of stuff on one side, and his God on the other side, and he says, Lord, I want you. I have nothing without you. We all make value judgments every single day. My guess is that these words of David did not come out of your mouth this week. But think about how you lived. Think about your practice. In practice, whom or what might you have addressed these words to? Keep me safe, O spouse. I've run for dear life to you. I say to my spouse, be my Lord. Without my spouse, nothing makes sense. Or maybe, keep me safe, O my job. I've run for dear life to you. I say to my work, be my master. Without my work, nothing makes sense. Or, keep me safe, YouTube and Netflix. I've run for dear life to you. I say to my entertainment, be my Lord, be my master. Provide me the security 
protection that I need. Without my entertainment, nothing makes sense. Or maybe it's keep me safe, oh, my perception of myself. I've run for dear life to this image I've created of myself, of myself in the eyes of others. So I say to my own self-creation, be my Lord. Nothing makes sense apart from my sense of self. Or maybe it's your identity as a mom or as a single person or as some other self-defining person of value. You have run to dear life and purpose to that. We haven't seen this in our country at all recently, right? Keep me safe, oh political party or ideology. I've run for dear life to my candidate. I say to him, be my master, my Lord. Life doesn't make sense if my party's not in charge. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong in a spouse, in a job, in entertainment, in money, in any one of the hats you wear in your life. There's not even anything inherently wrong in politics. In fact, I would argue, we could argue that there's an inherent good as common grace gifts from God in all of these things, but they become dangerous when we put them in the place of God in our practice. When they crowd out God in our everyday action. When they become our go-to for provision, for security, to remove the vulnerability that we feel. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, Isaiah, of course King David can say this. He's the king. It's easy for him to say this. He has all this power, all this prestige. So, of course, since he has it, he can stack it on one side of the room and then turn his back on it to say, well, I know it's there, so God, of course, you're all I want. And I know this is still back here. Maybe you say, put me in David's spot, and I could say that too. But I don't have all that power, that prestige, that popularity, that wealth to secure me. Give me just a little bit more security, a little bit more tucked away, just a little bit more fill in the blank. So just for kicks... Let's listen to someone in our own culture who has similar status of power and popularity and prestige as King David might have. A guy like Jim Carrey, who back in 2005 said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. End quote. Our culture is forever telling us that authenticity and experience are the only thing that matters to hold a microphone, right? To have a, a position, a posture in society to be listened to, authenticity, experience is what matters. 
So before we begin telling David that he doesn't actually know what he's talking about because he has all this power, prestige, wealth, and popularity, and whatever else, maybe he's actually in a better position for us to take his advice. Maybe he's in a better position to communicate truth about the lack of real substantial value that wealth, power, prestige, and influence actually has. In David's mind, none of it provided the security and sense of stability he needed and he longed for. So King David is relying upon God as if he didn't have anything else to fall back on as if he didn't have that, moment, that mountain of stuff. And that's the heart of faith. That is reliance. That is trust. That is belief. Faith is acting like there is not a plan B or C. Full-hearted reliance isn't half in and half out. My nephew's Enjoy the carousel down here at uh, Coolidge Park. I think it's a buck. Gets you a ride if you're looking for a cheap date night. It's great. You get on the platform. You choose your crazy animal. And then you just go around in circles for a few moments. And then you get off and try not to be dizzy. Now suppose the next time my nephews are in town, I join them at the carousel but rather than mounting one of the beasts, I put one foot in a horse's stirrup, and somehow I managed to stretch the other foot and I put it out on the concrete floor, off the carousel. In my mind, this horse is the best and the prettiest one. It's the one I want to ride with reckless abandon. But I think I'm going to leave a foot on the ground as well. That just seems like a good idea. It'd be absurd, right? It'd be foolish. It'd be dangerous. I'd be looking for a trip to the ER. So it is with faith in God over reliance on anyone or anything else. There is no place for a plan B. You can't go half on and half off and call it faith. It's all or nothing on plan A. God. So in this portrait of faith, David tells us about the perfect object of faith, and then he models for us what it looks like to actually trust him. So number two, the practice of trusting. The practice of trusting. Interestingly, he goes directly to others who trust God. He describes them as the holy ones. They're set apart by God, for God. These are the faithful, meaning those who've placed their faith in King David's God. And what is his posture towards them? Is it cynicism? Is it arm's length? Is it, I'll hang out with them when it's convenient, when it matches with my schedule? No, verse 2, he delights in them, or rather, verse 3. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. So question, do you value 
and delight in the people in whom Jesus delights, in whom God delights, the church. Let's be honest. Church, those who follow God, and I'm including myself, we can be a quirky lot, can't we? Can we just own that for a moment? Can we sit in the awkwardness of owning that for a moment? I can stand myself only about half the time, and I'm with myself almost constantly. But David recognizes that those who trust God have been set apart by God for himself, and so to delight in them is, in reality, to delight in God. We make no excuses here at Sojourn. We're a mess. We know it. You'll hear us open the service at various points like that. We are a complete wreck. Our future is incredibly bright. And because of Jesus, anybody can get in on this. But it begins with owning we're a wreck. We're a mess. Yes, we're hypocrites because we're sinners. We're still living into this grand story that God is writing. Individually, we are messes in whom God is working and changing. And so we delight in one another. And we delight to point out in each other's lives the ways that God is at work. Because I can't see my own face, and neither can you. We need one another. So we take delight in each other. The practice of God also involves not just delighting in those who also trust God, but in denying idolatry. To trust God is to turn our backs on anything else we might look like or look at to trust. In David's day, those idols, those objects of trust, had actual names like Baal and Ashtaroth. But today they have unexceptional names. Names like money, sex, power, prestige. But the end result of that idol worship is the same. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. So you see God's grace towards us sojourn this morning in pointing out to us, God in his kindness is telling us through David what to expect if we turn to any other object of trust besides him. So what can we expect? Multiplying sorrows. You see, sorrow is part of life in a broken world. That's not going to change until Jesus comes back and restores all things. But when we begin to trust idols and place our trust, our reliance on anything or anyone else, what can we from God expect? We're just going to multiply our sorrow. I think it's interesting. It's not addition here. It's multiplication. It's just going to increase. Idolatry is like leaning on a splintered walking stick for a broken leg. 
It might help you stand for a moment, but you're going to end up puncturing your hand. You're going to be in worse shape than you were before. And in case you think I came up with that crazy analogy, I didn't. That's 2 Kings 18.21. You know who says that? The king of Assyria, a pagan king. Who does he say it to? Israel. Who does he say about? Egypt. The king of Assyria looks at the people of God and says, if you trust the king of Egypt to deliver you, it's like leaning on a broken stick. You're going to puncture yourself. And God steps in and says, actually, if you lean on the king of Egypt or the king of Assyria or money, sex, power, your job, any relationship, you're going to lean on a broken stick. Choose alcohol as a God to rely on and you will multiply your sorrows. Choose reliance on yourself or workaholism over God and you will multiply your sorrows. Choose a political party to rely on and you're going to multiply your sorrows. Choosing a relationship to rely on and you are going to multiply your sorrows. This is the grace of God speaking to us. So what's multiplying your sorrows? Maybe the Spirit of God is revealing to you that your multiplied sorrows in this moment are not judgment from God, but they're the natural result of relying on someone or something else besides God to make life work. And God's graciously fatherly care in these moments is meeting you by His Spirit to turn you away from that idolatry and to Himself. So God continues, or rather David continues to practice trusting God by not only delighting in those who trust God and by denying idolatry, but also, verse 7, by listening to God's counsel. He says, I will bless the Lord who counsel me, counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So I wonder who or what has your ear this week? What friends or podcasts or news sources or entertainment have you been giving, have been giving you counsel on how to live your life, how to flourish? Sometimes it's just your own thinking, right? We have a tendency to listen to ourselves rather than to speak to ourselves, rather than to preach the truth to ourselves, or maybe that's just me. But here at Sojourn, we immerse ourselves in the Bible on Sunday in this gathering because we believe the Bible to be God's word to us. And we encourage you towards the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, prayer, meditation, silence, solitude. Why? Because we believe there is no better way to counteract the counsel we're breathing in from the world around us. There's no other way to be led, guided, and counseled by God than by His Spirit through His Word and prayer. But that takes time. It takes discipline. It takes silence. It takes solitude. It takes saying no to other things so we can quiet ourselves to be with God. 
The Lord also counsels through godly advisors. So who are the people we are going to for counsel? So number one, the perfect object of trust. Number two, the practice of trusting. Number three, the peace of trusting. The end of verse 8 says, Because God is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Maybe that word sounds familiar to you, because it's the same word that shows up at the end of Psalm 15 that we looked at last week. The person who does certain things will not be shaken, Psalm 15. And here, it is God's presence that's bringing that stability, that peace, that security, everything we long for. But maybe you're sitting here going, Isaiah, how do I know if I listen to King David that his experience is going to be mine? How do I know that peace is actually the end of this journey of trust in God alone apart from anything else? Because that's the tension, right? We live in a real world with loud voices that are telling us so many other places to go to find peace and security and eliminate our vulnerability and be all we can be and whatever other mantra you want to tie into this. So how can we rest assured that King David's experience will be our experience if we rely upon this God who is good? Well, there's two ways that the psalm answers that question. Look back up at verse 5 and 6. We skip them. Some of you noticed that, and it was driving you nuts. We're going back. Verse 5 and 6. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of these words are describing location, geography, plots of ground. So David is using two similar words to describe God, his portion and his inheritance and the ideas surrounding inheritance, boundary lines and future. The word portion comes from a worship context. Okay, a worshiper in the tabernacle would receive a portion of the sacrifice that they brought to God. So if they brought a lamb in sacrifice, most of that animal would be burnt up on the altar to God, but the priest before that would take a portion of that animal, give it back to the sacrificer, and that sacrificer would then enjoy that portion, eat it in God's presence. It was his portion. The second word, inheritance, was used to describe the physical land God gave Israel. It was divided out to each of the 12 tribes and their descendants. That land, think agricultural environment, was crucial to the flourishing, not just of the nation as a whole, but to each individual family within the nation. To the point that if one generation sold a plot of land that began, be, uh, belonged to their family to someone outside of their family. Their society was set up so that in 50 years, that property would then revert back to the original family. It was their inheritance. 
It was the gift of God to them. So what is David doing here? He's using both of those ideas, the portion of a sacrifice and the inheritance, to describe God himself. God is David's allotment in the practices of worship. What does David get when he worships God? God! David, the king of Israel, the one whom the entire nation belongs to as the head. Who does he consider to be his inheritance? Was it the land of of Judah or Israel or Asher or Dan? Any of the land of the 12 tribes? No, it was God. God was his inheritance. More valuable than land. So can we continue to trace this just a little bit further in our thinking? Eventually, after King David, there would come a greater than David. This greater than David would give himself in sacrifice to God, appeasing the wrath of God against our idolatry and our sinfulness. He would offer himself upon the altar of God's wrath. And then he would rise from the dead and come to his own inheritance, all the kingdoms of the world. And for any who will place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, he becomes for us our portion, our inheritance. When we receive this sacrifice for our sins in our place as our own, we are united to Jesus by faith. To use a metaphor that Jesus used, we feed on him by faith. We aren't actually eating him. But through faith, we're receiving into ourselves his own life, just as truly as in a few moments we will swallow bread and drink juice. And through faith, Jesus and his kingdom becomes our inheritance. So we can say with David, God, you are my portion, and you are my inheritance. Jesus secures the peace and stability that Psalm 16 describes. He secures it for you, and he secures it for me. King David points beyond himself to King Jesus. But there's a second way that this psalm answers the question, how can I know that King David's experience will be my own? Because the ultimate moment of vulnerability in each of our lives will be the moment of our death. We can be no more vulnerable in need of protection, deliverance, security than then. How do we know that God won't abandon us? Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad... And my whole being rejoices, my body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. So these are King David's words. 
but they are fulfilled ultimately in the greater King David, Jesus. God forsook Jesus on the cross so that God might receive you and I eternally. But then he didn't abandon Jesus to the grave. He didn't allow his perfect Holy One to see the defilement and corruption of decay. He raised him to life so that we might share that life with him. See, God has already proven his character. How do you know that your experience will be King David's experience? Because he's already proven it. Because King Jesus, in the place of King David, to the ultimate degree, degree of King David, trusted God as his portion and his inheritance. And what was God's response? Deliverance from death. Do you want protection? Do you want security? Do you want peace? Do you want an answer to the vulnerability that you feel every single day? Do you want to know that God, that David's experience will be your experience? Well, know this. The Lord God, through faith in Jesus, becomes our portion in life and our deliverer in death. And this is why we can have peace. What does that peace look like? Look at verse 11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. I dare you to try to mine that verse and reach the bottom. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. In your presence is abundant joy. Can you fathom that? No more vulnerability, perfect security and peace, abundant, overflowing joy, eternal pleasures in the presence of God. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, this is your current reality, and this is your future reality. There is no other option for the one who's trusted Christ. This is where you live. This is where you will live for all of eternity. The presence of God, eternal pleasures. So this is the portrait of faith. The psalm is what it looks like to rely on God. He's the perfect object of faith, So friends, let's practice trusting him in community together and enjoy the peace that trusting God provides through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in these moments we come to you confessing 
not just our weakness, for that is inherent to us, but we confess that we turn to all the wrong places for security in our weakness. Father, forgive us. Thank you for your grace to remind us that the alternative to trusting you is always multiplied sorrow. But the peace of trusting you is always abundant joy. So Father, would you grant us the grace to turn from our idolatry and to trust you by the power of your Holy Spirit We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.